You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And this is Shane. So this is Why We Do What We Do. Your favorite consumable psychology podcast. There you go. <laughs> I still haven't nailed that tagline yet. It's all right. It's all right. We're doing good. So today I'm very pleased to introduce an episode that we recorded a little while ago. It's actually just me. Shane, unfortunately, couldn't make it to that one. Um, but I recorded it with Dr. Scott Ross and Brooke Wagner. And they came on the episode to talk about bullying. It's an awesome topic. Um, it's pretty pretty intense topic though, right? Yeah, there was a lot to unpack. They did a great job discussing uh, some of the problems, I guess, with the definition of bullying as well as really mostly discussing some of the preventative as well as reactive strategies for managing bullying, specifically in a school environment. But you could also have it other places. Yeah, and I think I think that you know one of the reasons that we actually wanted to kind of touch on this is it seems like a pretty pervasive topic in our culture right now. Like you hear about bullying a lot, you hear about people discussing bullying and what that looks like, but I think it's probably important to shed some light on kind of what it really looks like and in, in kind of going back to the the interview and stuff, talking about what those actual definitions are and what's actually working for um, these systems where bullying is occurring and where it's not occurring. Yeah, great point. It's it is a topic that a lot of people have. A lot of, I guess there's just a really broad spectrum of how people are going to feel about this because if they've been the victims of bullying or if they feel like they have been called a bully but they they weren't actually doing bullying or, you know, wherever you fall on that spectrum of, of people, you are, or if you are feel removed from this, I think you'll find something interesting in, in this discussion that we had. Yeah, as you walk into this interview and you and you start listening to it, I think it's really important just kind of take it with an open perspective and just kind of hear the discussion around it so you can get a better idea, a better picture of, of really the objective parts of what bullying looks like here. Right, and Dr. Ross and um, Brooke Wagner were willing to share their contact, so uh, you can always reach out to them for more information. And so before we jump into this, I just want to remind everyone we have revamped our Patreon levels. There are uh, now several new perks and benefits that we've been able to fulfill on. We're really excited about having more people join our Patreon, including one I just want to highlight is our new Discord server, which is sort of a, a chat room for people who have decided to support the show, and where I, I have this just pulled up all the time. So I'm perpetually on. As long as I am awake and near my computer, I am available to um, potentially chat with, and I will respond as quickly as I can. I believe that Shane has already been on there as well. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yep, I have it linked to my phone. So um, you awesome. know, if you if you're on, uh, I get notifications that that you are on and you're asking questions. You can chat with either of us. That would be that would be really rad. We'd love to hear from you. Sweet. And um, in addition to that, just know that you can find us a lot of different places. We have been able to more widely distribute our podcast. So if you know someone who listens to podcasts but doesn't use the app that you use or whatever, we appreciate word of mouth is still one of the most powerful ways to spread the information about what we do and, and just get more people to listen in. Sounds good. Yeah. Reach out to us. All right, perfect. So without any further ado, please enjoy this episode on bullying with Dr. Scott Ross and Brooke Wagner. Thank you for listening. Make sure everything sounds okay. Um, Perfect. So thank you so much, both of you, for being willing to join me today. Let's go ahead and start with you, Dr. Ross, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself and giving a little background. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Uh, My name is Scott Ross. Uh, I direct the Office of Learning Supports in the Colorado Department of Ed. Uh, at the State Department, we oversee uh, all the bullying prevention work for the state. Uh, I've had the fortune to be able to do lots of lots of research over it on it over the years, um, including some some very outcome effective uh, strategies that we've been able to do in schools from elementary to high school. Awesome. And uh, and Brooke, would you mind just introducing yourself? Give a little bit of your history and background and credentials. Yeah, my name is um, Brooke Wagner. I live in Nevada. I have the opportunity to work on the ground with 18 school districts that range, or sorry, 18 school districts, 18 schools that range in size from um, some one-room schoolhouses to some more typical sized high schools. So we really have some contextual challenges that we work with, but it gives us um, an opportunity to see a broad range of kind of barriers and successes. My background with PBIS is is fairly new. I've only been with this work um, just over four years, coming on five. Um, and I am a candidate for my 
the CBA, but I have not yet achieved that. I have a background in special education. So I have a master's in school counseling as well as a master's in early um, childhood special education and standard special education. So I really come from an education lens, um, specifically with that lens on our students who um, have disabilities and struggle with some of the standardized environments in our school system. I've always had a fascination with education because I felt like I had such a I have unsatisfactory experience when I was going through the grade school years. And, and when I for, sort of discovered that there was a science of how to do this right, I was immediately intrigued. And so I've been very, I, I, I'm immediately um, interested in what, whatever people are doing. So I'm really interested in your guys' work. And as, as you know, today, part of our discussion, or really our entire discussion, as, is going to be centered on um, bullying and the work that Dr. Ross has done with this. And so let's start with the good definition of bullying, if you wouldn't mind, Dr. Ross. Um, how, how do you define bullying? And, and let's just go from there. Yeah, you know, it's actually it's a fascinating question. <laughs> you would think it would be a simple response, but this question in and of itself has created many of the problems we've run into in schools. Uh, if you go to all, every state in the country, as well as internationally, there are varying definitions. Of what is bullying? And that's why you see some schools calling everything bullying and other schools saying, oh, nothing, nothing is bullying. And you get to see both ends of that spectrum. Right. Uh, often it's, it's the parents who think that it's bullying and the, the school who said, no, 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 it doesn't meet that super high criteria. Uh, what I would say, though, is, is across the country, there are really three uh, criteria that make up most definitions of bullying. Um, number one is, is there needs to be an intent to harm. Uh, so the kid needs to want to hurt the other kid. Uh, number two is there needs to be what's called a power differential, where one kid is more powerful, which means bigger, stronger, faster, more popular, uh, in a better you know, ethnic group, et cetera, uh, that for, there has to be a differential between the two individuals. And then um, third, there needs to be repeated incidents. So it needs to happen not just once, but lots of times. Uh, but here's the challenge, though. All, all three of those have actually, all three of those criteria have been challenged by research, indicating that, in fact, none of those are actually necessary for kids to feel bullied, which obviously creates a real challenge sure. in our school. I don't mean to jump in, um, but just because I work on the ground and I work with so many administrators, I want to express their frustration in this, that um, we hear feedback so often from our administrative teams that they already have these heavy loads. Um, And then we have these ambiguous reports of bullying. And I want to be very clear, just like I was in my presentation, there are legitimate cases of bullying that we really need to give appropriate attention to. But there are also a lot of cases, as Dr. Ross spoke to, where, you know, parents are unclear of the bullying definitions or, um, you know, maybe students are even unclear of the bullying definitions. Or um, let's just say um, a paraprofessional on the playground walks up on something, you know, and speaking to those three things that Dr. Ross spoke of, you can't tell when you walk up on an incident on the playground if there's a power differential, if this is um, happening over time. These are just things that we're not going to be privy to when we're coming up on situations, and most of those situations are what occur in the school. So I just feel so strongly that um, we need to reshape the way that we think about it, and obviously um, led by some great curriculums out there, um, like Dr. Ross. But our administrators feel such frustration with this because the the law mandates that as soon as it's reported as such, they have um, steps that they have to take that take them many, many, many hours. In Nevada, I believe um, it's within a 12-hour response time. Uh, I need to check on that. Don't quote me. But um, it takes them many, many hours to follow the process of a formalized bully investigation. And so there's um, extreme pushback. Um, and frustration expressed by administrators on the ground. Um, so the, the three things that you mentioned, that there was the um, intent to harm, a power differential, and repeated instances of this, and you said that, that is, it's seeming more and more that that's not an adequate way of describing these incidents. And I also heard a little bit in here um, looking at this from the perspective of the person who's on the receiving end, whether they feel bullied. And so I'm kind of curious inside of that definition, um, 
what has the research shown that has you think that um, that that those criteria are not a good uh, metric for identifying something as bullying? Yeah, absolutely. So, what some of the neat research uh, coming out now is involves asking kids if they would call something bullying, and asking actually asking kids to define what bullying is and, and what features uh, are need, needed uh, for it to be considered bullying. Um, similarly, you know, just features of the environment challenge the definition components. As an example, repeated negative acts. I think everybody uh, could agree that one act, if it's bad enough, can constitute bullying. So I don't think there's anybody in the country that would say, oh, no, no, um, God forbid this terrible thing happened, I'm, and I'm not going to call it an incident of bullying because it only happened once. Nobody would ever say that. So that, in a, that one um, is relatively straightforward. Um, however, when they ask kids things like, so do you care if when Johnny punched you in the nose, do you care if he meant to hurt you <laughs> or not? Right. Uh, kids, kids say, I, I couldn't care less. All that matters is my perceived harm. And, th- and that's a really important point because many times when you approach kids who have been accused of bullying and you say, hey, um, were you bullying this other student? And they, they will often say, no, no, no. We were just playing football and only got a little out of hand or he did it first or, or you know, this is it, we're just we're just hanging out. Wasn't that big of a deal. Right. I didn't mean to hurt him. Right? So they, they often will give you that reaction, and it makes it very hard for adults to say, well, did he actually mean to hurt him, or is it because of his disability, or because of their friends, or whatever? So that one's very, very challenging, and kids themselves don't don't say it matters. And then the last one is, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying, so it sounds like it's pretty subjective right now. Oh, absolutely. All three of these are very subjective. Third one is the power differential, and I would argue that's the most subjective. Yeah, fair enough. Because, because, you know, power to you um, cannot, it can be totally different than power to me. You one day, you have three kids who like your outfit today. You, in essence, have a lot of power, right? And, and me, um, I might be wearing the wrong shoelaces and all of a sudden I have no power. So imagine the, uh, the idea of, you know, having to watch an incident and then determine where, where the power is in the scenario. It's easy if you got a fifth grader and a second grader. Right. And the fifth grader is this big kid and he's beaten up on the second grader. But what about when it's two third graders, which is usually the case, frankly, right, or two fourth graders. And and there's a mean girls group, quote unquote, and they're making fun of one girl. And then tomorrow they're making fun of another. It gets very, very difficult uh, to tell uh, what's going on and where the power is. And I haven't even talked about things like LGBTQ or or ethnic uh, diversity or any of those sort of things that make up a power differential. And on top of that, when they ask the kids, kids don't say it matters either. So when they ask kids, you know, does it matter if there's a power differential? They say, no, that doesn't make any, that doesn't matter. All that matters is is that I'm being regularly beat up or teased or or excluded from activities from people. Or as you said, even in the one instance of that happening. um, One instance. Yeah. And so all all that's, that's really interesting. So based off of that, is there a new sort of proposed definition that would be a, a better way of uh, describing an instance of bullying? Yeah, you know, that's that's really that that would be ideal. Right. And and I've made an effort to, to do that. Uh, it is it is not easy because it goes fundamentally against the typical way of looking at problem behavior, which is by topography, meaning hit, kick, pushed bully is thought of as the topography of the behavior, right? What it actually looks like. However, what we're finding very clearly is that almost all incidents of this peer-to-peer aggression uh, is reinforced by peer attention. And so when other kids are laughing, joining in, cheering it on, or fighting back with the victim, those are all forms of peer attention. And what we find is that in almost all cases of the topography of bullying, uh, it is reinforced by the attention of peers. And so I would often make the argument with schools and with districts that, you know, you're going to have to report incidents of bullying, right? That's just part of it. So you have to define it for your school and so forth. But when it actually comes to doing something about it in your schools, let's not focus on the topography and instead focus on how do we 
react when somebody is uh, trying to get our attention for the, by doing the wrong behavior. So how do kids react in order to remove the peer attention from the situation? How do we act, get kids to react to reinforce the stand-up behavior? Okay. And I really like I really like what Dr. Ross said about defining it because that's a lot of the work that we do with our schools on the ground when we're actually addressing this topic with them. We talk about the subjective nature of our behavior definitions and this being kind of one of those cases. And so what does it mean when we define it? What does it mean when we um, operationally define it? What does disrespect look like? What does bullying behavior look like? And instead of calling up it bullying behavior. Let's call it those behaviors, as Dr. Ross just said. Let's call it the behaviors that it is um, so that we can get really pinpoint because not all negative behavior student to student are bullying behaviors, like he said. So it sounds like what the the position that's being made here is that there's not really a lot of there's not it's not that useful to have a sort of general def- definition of it but instead to look at the uh the problems that are relevant for the school or the situation in which the bullying is taking place is, is that is that correct well the the state in, in many cases is going to require that the district have a a definition or response on the incidents using a certain definition. Okay. And the state will have a definition that the school is required to respond to. So it, that, that definition is extremely subjective though, right? So it'll have pieces of intent or, or power differential or repeated acts in the state definition. So the, the schools are required to report those incidents. I think that the argument that Brooke and I are making are, is simply that, yes, you have to report those in a certain way. However, we need to be very specific within the school to define what does this actually mean uh, for us, right? And what 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 is our response going to be? And what are we going to? And most importantly, what are we going to teach the kids to do and the staff to do when they run into incidents? Are we just going to do this official state report? Is that all? Is that we're gonna, are we going to wait until it's so bad that there's an official state report? Or are we actually going to do something? Um, to prevent those smaller acts that would never actually meet the criteria that the state has put in place. And I, I love that Dr. Ross said that because at the level that I work with in the schools, this is important conversation to have with your staff. So like he said, it's going to look different, uh, maybe district by district, but even site by site. And so as an administrative team, we like to guide them, have these conversations with your staff we have this definition per our Nevada state legislature of what bullying is. Now let's really talk about it as a staff, what that means in our building so that we're all reporting accurately um, as much as we can with that, you know, kind of inner observer like subjectivity that will always occur. But those are crucial conversations to have with your staff so that we understand going in and we can remove as much of that subjectivity as we can. Okay. And I think really helpful the way that you guys set that up. And so something else that occurred to me um, as you were talking about that is whether or not you think based on that, it is still useful for the state or the schools or whoever to make a distinction between bullying behavior and other types of maybe aggressive or inappropriate or challenging behaviors in the school. Mm. Whether there's a point to having that reporting you know, that's the I I would now that I've worked at a state department for a few years, I would make an argument that there is a, a value in tracking the number of incidents per district per per in the state. Um, be, be, if for no other reason, then you can document the impact of interventions on those incidents. Yes, they're going to be subjective. Um, yes, there's going to be a lot of variability from district to district. I understand all that. But if we can get that data and then do intervention, we can see the impact that an intervention has on that subjective reporting. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Amazing sense. Yeah. I love that State Department view. And what a beautiful thing if we had our State Department have such kind of clear uh, guidelines that could at least um, elicit those conversations from our staff that say, you know, Here's a less ambiguous way that we'd love for you to talk about this with your staff. Um, but really, Dr. Ross is correct. We need that data collection. 
we need to understand what the prevalence of you know these occurrences are in our school and there's a there's a really really important reason that we report those because at the end of the day we're trying to do what's best for kids and we're trying to protect kids and we can't get lost in any of that really well said um i think that was that makes for a really great sort of sound bite on here and so i want to continue on this why do you think it's important then you've already talked around this a bit but just to get a really clear statement on why it's important to not treat those other types of aggressive behavior or challenging behaviors as bullying um, and make that definition so broad that it includes too many things. Does that make sense, what I'm asking? I think so. So you, are, are you asking, so why are we um, making the, allowing the definition to be broad? Yeah, go I ahead, want bro. to jump in, um, and I don't know if this is what you're clarifying. Dr. Ross, so when I was talking about this at the conference, I proposed it as a kind of, a construct. So bullying is this construct, right? And we think of it as such because it means something different to anyone and everyone. So when we look at kind of the umbrella and we put bullying in the top of the umbrella, then what's like hanging underneath our umbrella? So what are the actual behaviors that we're hanging underneath this construct? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. And also, why is it important to ensure that the umbrella isn't too big? You know, that it, it doesn't include so many things that every little thing that a kid does is considered bullying. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I hear what you're saying now. Uh, and the it would be easy to get more and more specific at the state level with what a definition is. And what but the problem is that it, 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 it takes away the, the contextualization um, bullying looks very, very different in different places. So there is advantage to having a broad definition at the state and then having a more specific definition within the schools because, it, and I'll tell you, in working in urban settings, bullying looks extremely different than what it looks like in, in rural settings. Wow. Um, so you can hold to a, a very, very specific definition, but you're often going to result in uh, things un- being underreported, right? Or, or not in, people waiting to a certain criteria before they report. One of my big arguments is we got to stop waiting until it meets these high degrees of criteria to actually do something. There's, there's a re- need for more prevention. And what we often find is that schools are waiting until something is officially an incident before they actually start preventing it. You say, oh, now there's been five incidents and we have, unfortunately, kids really injured or hurt because the definition met this super high criteria. One of the things Brooke mentioned is is that we teach kids about what it looks like to be respectful and what it looks like to not be respectful. And so we actually teach the kids, what do you do when somebody's being disrespectful? Um, when I do training on, on this material, I don't have them wait until it's a formal bullying incident before the kid can stand up for themselves. Yeah. I want kids to stand up for themselves when they just perceive it as disrespect, um, because those are the incidents that end up becoming those official major incidents. Makes sense. Okay, well, although I really enjoyed sort of having these big discussions around simple definitions, and I think because it can be really important to ensure that we're really clear in our terms, as you both know, being professionals in the field, where you draw the line uh, and where something begins and where something ends becomes really important when you have to report that to a group mm-hmm. of people who are uh, footing the bill for <laughs> whether or not there are resources allocated to deal with that as a problem or not. Um, but I really thought it would be useful, too, to dive into, with the definition we now have, um, understanding bullying and why it takes place and how it takes place and all, all of that, why do certain kids start to become bullies? Oh, yeah. Um, abs- um, they, it's actually pretty clear on, on how that all occurs. It, it really comes down to a transition in what motivates behavior. Uh, when, when my kid, I have a kindergartner, when she's learning to tie her shoes, um, the most important thing in the world to her is my attention. Right, me saying, "Hey, good job, Annie. You're you're awesome." Right, that is, it's touching how powerful that recognition and attention is for my kindergartner. Sure. However, right around third grade, the power of that attention starts to diminish a little bit, and what starts to take over is the value of your friends saying you're awesome and I like you and what you did was cool. 
And it's that transition from the value of adult attention to the increasing value of peer attention that really drives bullying behavior. And every kid doesn't, you're not, you're not a bully. Every kid at the school is, ha- is going through that transition. Every kid is seeing more and more value in peer attention and are going to be trying things to get that peer attention. They're going to be trying good things and sometimes not so good things to get that peer attention. And that's really what forms bullying. That's what teaches bullying. Kids try something that isn't always the most appropriate strategy. And if it works to get them peer attention, it's going to increase the future likelihood of exhibiting that problem behavior. Simple as that. And, and as that problem behavior gets reinforced over and over and over again, the frequency of it increases and so does the intensity. And before you know it, you have somebody who you would quote unquote qualify as a bully because they have received so much access to peer attention for their problem behavior. Sometimes that peer attention comes in the form of other kids afraid of them. Other times it's in the form of other kids joining in and thinking they're the coolest thing on the block, right? But it, it, either way, it's the peer attention that teaches the kids uh, to, to try bullying behaviors. I was hoping to look from another lens, and I'd love your um, feedback, Dr. Ross, because I've heard you talk many times, and um, the function, I think, is just spot on. And I sometimes wonder when I think about it from a skill deficit lens of our students, right? Advocating for our students that maybe come from homes where this learned behavior is maybe considered more appropriate or more reinforced, if you want to say. So when we look at it from that lens of skill deficit, that's why I like the model that we use with um, our school-wide expectations, because we are leveling or attempting to level that playing field and teaching those expectations once they arrive at the school and then adding those additional supports for our students who maybe come with that skill deficit. I do believe that some of these behaviors are skill deficits that some of our students haven't learned, but I, I welcome feedback on that. No, I, I totally agree with you. Oftentimes um, it's an acquisition, what we would call an acquisition deficit. Uh, a student has never actually learned how to access the peer attention the right way. So if they come from a difficult home environment where modeling has taken place of inappropriate behavior, what are they gonna try first? <laughs> they're gonna try the things they've seen. Yeah, they're gonna try this, they're gonna try what they see on a regular basis from their parents, from their siblings, and so forth. But importantly, if it works, they'll do it more often. If it doesn't work, it doesn't matter if they were mod- if it was modeled inappropriately. If it doesn't work to access peer attention, it's very unlikely that it will um, get to that severe point. But I, I think your, 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 your point is, is absolutely correct, that there is an acquisition deficit. Many kids have never actually learned how to um, act respectfully towards their peers. They never actually learned the strategies that work. And we find that in some cases, when initial strategies don't work around teaching expected behavior and expected responses, the next step is maybe this kid He's never actually learned how to get at the behavior or the respect the right way. And so some minor, minor social skills instruction is incredibly powerful for those kids not responding. Agreed. One of the best uh, talks I've ever listened to is from Dr. Ross talking about bully prevention and the social skills interventions for those students that don't respond to kind of our standard prevention efforts and um, really how adaptive he talks about that. You can really um, teach and embed those skills with students in so many ways and really think outside the box and have all of the adults in our building be embedding those skills with our students. So uh, that's for another podcast, but you should hit him up because it's a really good one. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Great. So one of the one of the things you both spoke to, I was going to ask about, and I just want to make sure we're very clear on as well, is that you mentioned that you have this situation where students might sort of be casting about in a way, trying to find something that's going to get them some of that attention. And that might include doing things that are inappropriate or potentially violent, and that those might increase as they you know, they stop producing attention at a certain level, so they sort of ratchet up their intensity until it, it produces attention again, and that might sort of shape up some of that aggressive and, and bullying behavior. And then the other one that you mentioned I was going to ask about specifically was this example or situation, I guess, of 
individuals who are in environments outside of school that have that kind of violence going on. And sometimes that's at, at, at the level of the homes or the parents or that or the siblings. And it might also be a different peer group that they're, um, that they're around outside of the home where they are both observing the that kind of aggressive behavior as well as being subjected to it or maybe one or the other. Yeah, absolutely. I think from a behavioral lens, uh, it, it serves in several parts of a contingency. One is the simply simple modeling of the behavior, right? And, and the, and, and the actual teaching of what it can look like. So they're getting ideas. Another is in, in the, the, um, in service of, of a setting event, something that actually changes the value of the reinforcement. So um, if I'm getting um, really punished or if I'm getting um, not access, I'm, I'm not getting access to any attention at home, even that day going to school, the, the value of getting that peer attention for me has just increased drastically, which is why you often see kids who are upset or, or um, inappropriately treated at home bringing that, bringing that to school. So it fits in, in many parts of the behavioral uh, contingency. And there are actual strategies that fit uh, within those as well. Awesome. I'd love to, you guys already mentioned some of the strategies that do work. I'd love to move into really quickly talking about some of the the biggest failures and attempts to try and deal with bullying in schools, either at the state level or at the district level or, or whatever makes the most sense. If you have some examples of where people have tried something and it just spectacularly failed um, and, and maybe oh. speculate as to why. Well, zero, zero tolerance has spectacularly failed across the country um, as, as probably the most common strategy and, and the least effective. Zero tolerance, of course, being uh, one incident of bullying and we're going to kick you out or you're going to be suspended and, and, and so forth. Obviously, punishment-focused interventions uh, are designed to decrease the likelihood of a behavior. However, when they are delivered at such a low rate, only once the behavior has become so significant, it's very unlikely it's actually going to change a student's behavior. If you can go back to you know that learning of bullying behavior where a problem behavior is reinforced and it's reinforced again and then it's reinforced again and then it's reinforced again on a high rate, uh, it's going to be pretty ingrained with the student. That's what they're going to do. If I throw in a big punishment here and there, it's probably not going to have the biggest effect. All it's going to do is make the kid not want to come to school, uh, do vandalism to the school because they're angry at the school, or drop out. While punishment is at times, and when I say punishment, that's really anything that decreases the likelihood of behavior, but consequences for students, while those are absolutely necessary at times, those should definitely not be uh, the focus of intervention. You know, similarly, you know, we run into interventions that unfortunately increase access to peer attention when there's an incident. So if you've seen some of the, uh, the documentaries on bullying where, the, where there's an incident between two kids and then the, the principal comes in and makes the two kids shake hands, you know, and, and talk it out. Um, in, in a lot of cases, the kid exhibiting the problem behavior is being further reinforced by the attention of the victim who wants nothing to do with the, with the intervention that the principal is doing. Uh, other ones are things like hallway monitors where you have kids policing other kids, which often ends up nice. in, yeah, oh, you see it all the time, um, where, where you see kids becoming the bully because they now have access to that peer attention and can show their power or they get bullied um, and do not want to be the hallway monitor anymore. Uh, one third one that we often see is when you take all the bullies in the school and you put them in a social skills group and you have them <laughs> talk about what they did to Sally yesterday. You know, and the first the first kid says, "Oh, you know, I pulled her pigtails." The second kid says, "You know, I I you know I pushed her off her seat," and the third kid says, "Well, I haven't done anything yet, but." Their weight. <laughs> I'm coming tomorrow. <laughs> right? I'm going to prove it to you guys now. that I'm, that I'm, yeah, I've got some ideas and I see where this is going, right? We're, we're encouraging others. Now, Tom Deshaun, uh, who did fantastic research uh, at Oregon, used to call that um, pure deviance training. Yeah. We're actually training each other uh, to exhibit that, that problem behavior. So, those are three examples I can think of. 
I was drawing some parallels with like uh, social program, uh, not social programs, but like uh, sort of government uh, interventions. Like it seems to me that the the zero tolerance policy is very similar to the idea. This is like the academic capital punishment. Of, mm. You know how how often has capital like it, it stops that one person from from doing anything else, but n- nobody else. Um, and they had so many incidents of them doing whatever the inappropriate behavior was up to, up to that point. And then the, the other one is, is actually very similar is this idea of putting them all in a room is sort of like, that's the, the prison model of, uh, of the, the school where it's like, let's take all the bad yeah. kids and put them in one room and have them learn from each other. Yeah. Well, I also, I also think that, um, a knee-jerk reaction that many of our schools have is the idea that we need to. So we have an incident. Uh, it draws the attention of you know who, whomever it may be, maybe our state department, maybe our local media, and then we have this knee-jerk reaction where we um, we need to go buy an expensive boxed curriculum because we need to you know quote unquote prove that we're doing something. And I really want to advocate for the fact that the big, the big boxed programs are not necessarily what every school needs in every incident. So just like any other work that we do, we always want to look at our need and we want to have that data to back up what our specific need is. And then we want to choose an intervention that's going to be effective for our specific need, not just run out and buy the expensive program so that you know our superiors can check the box. It's not the intention of why we're doing this. And at the ground level, we would always, I would always advocate for my people to um, leverage what you're doing first, look at your need, and then choose your interventions accordingly. And so I can't tell you how many times I've said to people, stop, do not press purchase. We have a lovely curriculum that already leverages the wonderful work that you're doing. It is a light lift. Let's start there first before we go buying a big boxed curriculum that you're a minute or that you're teaching staff will label as, you know, quote, one more thing. Really leveraging the work that you're doing instead of this knee-jerk reactionary um, thing that sometimes we do in education. If only there were a system for collecting information about how well these things work and then deciding based on that information how to move forward. When we have Loctite behavior data, it helps us in that decision. So like Dr. Ross said, you know, so um, our peer-to-peer interactions, if we are collecting Loctite data, we can get into our data and we can see where our high prevalences occur and that helps drive our intervention efforts. And so that's why our data collection is like so imperative. And I probably hammer it more than I should uh, with my sites, but only because I'm so passionate about the fact that if we collect it properly, it can drive so much of what we do and give us so much information. Well, I was actually, I was trying to be a little facetious, um, but because uh, really data collection is the way to go, is that if you, if, ah. you, if you have data, then you can make those decisions. And if you don't have data, then you're left with your hands in the air. Then we're just, all just guessing. Yeah, we're just guessing, yeah. exactly. Maybe roll, I love roll to the say dice. shooting off the hip. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Because in, in education, we love to shoot off the hip. We like to, you know, oh, I'm going to shoot that intervention down off the pile. Ping! <laughs> Um, could you, uh, speak to a little bit what restorative justice is and how that fits inside of this and if that has worked or, or hasn't worked? Uh, restorative practices can be very effective. Uh, just like anything else, if done well, uh, there is research suggesting that it does, it can work very well. However, there's also research, um, that has, that can indicate that it is counter, uh, productive and actually can increase incidence. And so that's really become this a bit of a mixed results thing. Uh, I would argue first that, you know, it definitely can work. The thing you have to be careful of is restorative justice and restorative practices at the, at the most intensive level is about bringing together students on both sides and having them, having them really um, work through the challenge, right? And that you bring in the community, you bring in uh, everybody in and it can be very powerful. Unfortunately, it can, if done wrong, it can also provide additional peer attention to the problem. And there have been instances where parents get into physical fights during restorative justice circles, um, where kids get picked on more as a result um, of those, you know, where, where kids don't want to come to school. So there, there have been some negative results. So again, it can work at that level. 
Um, and it's, uh, but it can also backfire if you're not very careful. And, but what I'll also say is, you know, that's one part of restorative justice. There are other components that get much more into prevention and are extremely similar to the work of positive behavioral interventions and supports, such as on the smaller circles in homeroom, where, where kids speak highly of each other um, every day or every week um, and, and really engage in, in positive interactions, which are fantastic uh, and do really and really be effective. I just get nervous with restorative justice when we start talking about um, responding to serious incidents through a big circle that can work very well, but it can also backfire if not done correctly. Perfect. And can you just provide real quick a, a definition of restorative practices? Well, I mean, from a very broad perspective, it's just a matter of, of reconciling between the victim and the perpetrator, right? It's, it's really an approach, a set of approaches that are really about rehabilitation and um, really getting offenders or getting uh, bullies or perpetrators or whatever to really um, reconcile with the victim uh, and, you know, the families involved and, and, and everybody involved. So that's, that's, a, that's sort of your broad um, idea. The actual strategies within that vary quite a bit, but one of the common ones is the, these restorative justice circles where the community is brought in and um, conversations take place about the reconciliation um, and rehabilitation of offenders with, uh, with their victims. So I guess when we think about it from this lens, when we would think about ourselves, right? Um, and let's say that something traumatic has happened between us and another adult or us and another you know, person. When we, when we go to repair that, uh, repair harm, I've heard that word a lot associated with this work that they do. When we go to repair that harm, you have to already have um, laid the foundation of trust and mutual respect and a lot of these things that we build in a positive uh, behavior network already, because I'm not going to go be in a room with another adult to repair the harm if I don't feel that I'm in a trusting environment with that person. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with our students. We have to build that first before we bring two people in a room. Like Dr. Ross said, it can end very poorly and that's not the outcome that we want. So when we build these foundations first, it just leverages that good work that they do. Absolutely. Perfect. Could, so since we're on this topic, could you both speak to the the other the solutions that have proved to be effective? You've already mentioned a few, but especially on on the side of prevention. And then when there is support that's needed, aft as a reactive measure, uh, what has been in place to work there? Well, you know, I would I would start with some of the recent work we've been doing, which is all around getting students to lead the work. So if peer attention is really what's driving the problem, we want student attention to drive this solution. So we are often in middle schools, high schools, elementary schools, all the way across the board, building student leadership, really powerful student leadership teams where they can actually look at data, discuss strategies and implement strategies in their schools. And those strategies are usually around how can students recognize students for stand-up behavior? So when somebody stands up the right way and helps other kids out, how do we use peer attention to reinforce that, that behavior and turn it into a culture of the school? And we've had some fantastic effects of just doing that. You know, as, as an example, we, we did a study with high schools where the high schools formed a student leadership team. And importantly, these student leadership teams are not your officers. They are not the kids with the best grades always. In, in fact, right. sometimes they're not the kids with the best behavior. And... What we find is that when those student leadership teams really drive the work, other kids in the school are more likely to buy into the strategies and they're more likely to implement the strategies and they're more likely to get behind the work. Cool. That's number one for sure. Um, you can then, of course, go with other strategies are teaching kids how to respond appropriately to incidents, teaching adults how to uh, respond when kids come to them in a way that every adult has a similar response so kids feel really comfortable talking to them about it. So there, there, are, there are quite a few things that we're finding some great effects with. I'm going to leave that one to Dr. Ross because um, I just peddle his work. So he's the originator. <laughs> you just heard it from him. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like the leadership one could both be preventative and reactive. Is, is that correct? Uh, I'd be careful about being reactive, actually. 
Uh, you don't want you create a student leadership team. You don't want them to react to the incidents. Oh, okay. You we want them to because you, you don't want them to become that hallway monitor, right? Good call. You don't want them to become the ones walking around. Oh, don't you do that? Don't you do that? They they truly are about recognizing kids for the right thing. Um, they're really about changing the culture in the school from one that's looking for problems to one that's looking for um, solutions, right? Or to looking for stand-up behavior. So really they are focused at the preventative level. Um, they do react to positive incidents. So as an example, uh, schools will put boxes around the school. In fact, the student leadership team will make those boxes and they'll make posters and all that. But it's an opportunity where any kid in the school or staff or a family member can write on a form um, when they saw or experienced somebody standing up for somebody else. Now, I admit this goes beyond just bullying, right? We have actually had this intervention really work for suicide prevention. Wow. Um, Stand-up behavior goes beyond just standing up to bullying, right? Yeah. And stand up to a lot of things appropriately. So one example intervention is they, they put these boxes around the school. Kids or adults can, can nominate other students who they saw or experienced exhibiting stand-up behavior. Then once a month, student leadership team pulls those pulls those nominations out and goes through a process of of, of privately usually um, publicly you can do, but often it's more effective to privately recognize uh, those kids who are caught standing up, and it very quickly changes uh, this the the culture of the school into one where kids really want to find opportunities to help each other out. Could you quickly define for me what school climate is? Sure. Um, so school climate is the, the feeling uh, of the environment in a school. So if kids feel safe, feel liked, feel respected by both adults and kids, that would be, that would be the, the school climate. When you, when you walk into a school, you can feel <laughs> the climate. I mean, you, almost instantly. It's shocking when there are positive kids walking around, um, or if kids are afraid to walk down the hall, you can feel it in the in the climate of the environment. Um, I think that that would be a pretty safe definition. Brooke, would you add anything to that? Um, no, just the perception that school climate, um, we look at it from kind of two levels. We look at it in the work that we do at that school-wide level, and then we also want to do some collection or some looking kind of at that individual level. So we want to ask our students, you know, we get a good sense from our school-wide level, but we also want to get into the weeds a little bit and find out, do you feel safe at school? Do you have an adult that you can talk to? And so we want to look and see if our students, um, right, do our students feel safe at our schools? So um, there's some lovely measures that we use and that we recommend for teams to use if they're interested in taking a deeper look uh, at their school climate, as we call it, than kind of your overall positive behavior support system. So uh, the then the strategies that you've discussed so far with leadership, would that be something that would be reflected in school climate? Oh, yeah, most definitely. Cool. Um, kids being feeling safer at school will be a direct outcome of kids standing up for each other. Right. If I don't if nobody if, if somebody stands up for me, I'm going to feel much more comfortable being in the school environment than if nobody is is recognizing anybody's behavior and nobody's standing up for anybody else. Okay. And what I loved, I loved about that is that Dr. Ross essentially brought that kind of full circle to where we started. When you asked the question of, you know, how does bullying behavior start? He gave you the answer that essentially, you know, it's a reinforced behavior. So here we are thinking at uh, as a scale and we say, let's reinforce the behavior that we want to see instead of this behavior maybe that we didn't want to see or maybe that was occurring. Um, and so he brought it back full circle to reinforcement. And I would like to point out um, that, you know, reinforcement and shaping of behavior work, works across fields. So it's funny because my husband works in mining um, and he is the director of the safety department and they've used behavior-based safety for years and they do caught being good cards at their workplace. So this is a private industry tool that's used because it is effective. And so I just kind of love when we see it across fields that really this is a behavioral tool that we use because it's effective. 
Can uh, Dr. Ross, can you specifically say, uh, or do you have, and actually, Brooke, if you have the information here as well, um, how how much data is there that is in support of this working? Uh, how many schools or how many students? Well, there are, there are a lot of strategies that have been effective. One, one of the challenges we face is how do we separate out the strategies? Um, so just doing student leadership uh, and just focusing on that, we've been able to be very successful with and there are around 40, 50 schools now um, just really focused on that and measuring pre-post student surveys, whether they feel like their school climate is safe. We've been actually able to, to document a 60% reduction in kids feeling like they're, they'll be bullied or saying that they have been bullied. So about 60% reduction in that and also significant increase in feelings of safer school climate. But that's you know not a huge number of schools. 40 to 50 or so, or maybe, 30, yeah, somewhere in the 40s, I think, we're at right now. The problem is because they, they don't just do that. They start there, but then they quickly take it to another place, right? Sure. So it starts with a simple student leadership and voice and getting students to recognize other students. But it quickly turns into, oh, the staff now want to do it, right? The kids have been doing this for six months, and the staff were like, wow, this really works. Maybe I should start recognizing kids for, for, for good behavior. <laughs> And you then you quickly turn, yeah, right? It's amazing how much staff will learn from students. It is shocking how you will see staff that teachers who at the start do not believe that it's their job to teach behavior um, wow. or that it's their job to recognize positive behavior. You see a fundamental shift in their philosophy of education because they're taught by kids, right? The kids say, Mr. Johnson, how come all the other teachers are recognizing kids for stand-up behavior and you never do? That has a big impact on an adult. Uh, and so you often, that one of the challenges with the research on it is, is it's hard to separate out just the student leadership and voice from, wow, this really just turned into a full-blown uh, positive behavioral intervention supports intervention where adults are getting, getting into the weeds and recognizing kids and teaching expectations and looking at data and all that stuff. Um, so it's a little... A little a little bit tricky to to separate out. I will say there are other uh, interventions as well, such as teaching all the kids in the school a specific response uh, to problem behavior. So when there is disrespectful behavior, coming up with a school-wide uh, response that's very simple, very easy to learn, very easy to practice with students. And we've had a great amount of success uh, in those interventions as well, especially when the student leadership team helps develop the language and helps implement the intervention. Uh, we have several hundred schools. Um, we may be up to a thousand schools now that have been able to demonstrate significant reductions in bullying in their schools as a result of, of using that strategy. But again, it's hard to separate. And just out. a little, yeah, sorry, just a little qualitative feedback. Um, and again, Dr. Ross can speak to the research because his name is on it. Yeah. <laughs> but what I hear consistently from our school staff as well as our administrators, so when we train um, under our positive behavior support, we train the expect respect um, and the stop walk talk as a part of the system that they're already using. And the feedback that we hear is that they love that it is a light lift, that it goes along with their school-wide expectations, but it's not, quote, one more thing. They feel like that the two fit together very nicely. So we often uh, just hear feedback after our trainings that they're really surprised that this is going to be uh, not, not, to, not easy. That's not the intention. And I think that word oversimplifies it, but um, essentially it's leveraging the work they're already doing and it's maybe amplifying it and adding some tweaks and they really appreciate that. Cool. And, and it sounds like, um, are any of those more in the category of more reactive strategies, the ones that you've listed? Uh, you could make that argument that's it's reaction. What I would make the argument though, it's, is that it's only reacting to minor incidents. Okay. So it, it's actually not reacting to incidents of bullying at that point. If you wait until an incident of bullying is qualified as an incident of bullying, you're usually into some pretty reactive consequences for the perpetrator, right? You're, a higher tier level of intervention is needed. What strategies like teaching kids a stop response 
That's re what it's really valuable for is those less intensive incidents that usually escalate in, into that higher uh, intensity behavior. So give you an example. Um, kid one tells a yo mama joke to kid number two, right? That kid <laughs> finds it bothersome, doesn't do anything about it, just tries to just tries to laugh it off or whatever uh, kid one finds that successful goes to the next level of the yo mama joke and adds in you know i don't know yo data joke right and 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 slowly increases the intensity and the frequency of that behavior still not called bullying no school would call it bullying at this point but i'll tell you if if that kid does that every day uh, and it just gets worse and worse and worse and then you have an, a physical altercation all of a sudden, you've got this major incident of bullying that you have to, quote unquote, react to. However, if kid number two or a bystander at the very beginning stood up for, for kid number two and said, hey, man, that's not what we do in this school or stop or, hey, enough or quit it or, hey, that's over the line, you know, or, or whatever, used a simple response that effectively reduced the access to peer attention that that student number one was getting. You're gonna you're gonna cut it off at the knees, and you're gonna you're gonna remove the possibility of that ever becoming an incident you have to react to. Perfect. Yeah, I was kind of thinking, um, and where, where I was leading up to this is having people who we might have listeners who hear this and think, well, that's all well and good, but I've got some kids who like this would just never work with. Like they're just they're too intense. They they never listen to anything we do. Um, all the things we've tried haven't worked, and regardless of whether or not that's any of that's true, just thinking of for those people who feel like they have a hopeless case, uh, if there's a recommendation around how to deal with those um, cases that they have arisen, they're definitely bullying, um, and and what do they do next, uh, mm -hmm. if you have any advice for them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you will have 1% to 5% of, of kids who may need something like that. First quick trick is to figure out what's actually going on. So all the things we've discussed so far are problem behaviors reinforced by peer attention. And it is very possible that some kids, their problem behavior is not reinforced by peer attention. They, they might be doing it to get lunch money. They may be stealing every kid on the, the, the play yard their, their money um, because they really don't have money for food. So it's a completely different intervention. But it could be perceived as bullying because that's what it looks like. Um, you could also have uh, situations where Kids really actually want adult interaction, even if that adult interaction is in the form of punishment. They actually um, are looking for adult attention that much that they would do that. Um, you know, so there, there are that is one. The first step is to figure out what's actually going on. Is this kid actually exhibiting this problem behavior because of peer attention? Is there something else going on? A second piece is we often find that kids don't respond when they're they're in a gang or a gang-like mentality, um, because even if I teach kids why to stand up for others, how to do it the right way, uh, how to not um, provide peer attention to the situation, in some environments there's so much um, gang-like mentality that nobody in that gang, quote unquote, is going to be willing to stand up to their to their peers. So we see that uh, quite often. In those cases, it's often best to, to practice with the individuals within the, those groups and really reinforce the idea of this will not, this problem behavior won't last if people stop reinforcing it. So one analogy we use is um, the a flame, you know, problem behavior being the flame, oxygen being the fuel for that flame. And similarly, bullying is like the flame and peer attention is like that oxygen that keeps it going. If we can if we can pull the bystanders, the kids who are reinforcing it aside and really um, teach them the role that they're playing in the in, in environment, the role they're playing as the oxygen that feeds that gang like mentality and that that the problem behavior, you can really effectively reduce reduce its frequency intensity. Um, and then lastly, you know, some kids like Brooke said earlier, they've never actually acquired skills to do it the right way. Um, they've never, they want to get peer attention. What they're doing really works. So you have to make that not work anymore. Hence the peer strategies. But then you need to teach those kids what's a better way 
more effective way, more efficient way to get that peer attention you're after. Awesome. Brooke, do you have anything to, to add to, uh, to what Dr. Ross says or any of the stories or anything? No, that was beautiful. Okay. I, uh, <laughs> spot on. You're nice, Brooke. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, do you, uh, could you guys give some resources for people who are maybe interested in learning more about how they could bring this to their school or, or maybe even work environment, a uh, website or, any, or curriculum they can purchase or, or anything like that? Uh, sure. I, I think the easiest one uh, to start off with is, is www.pbis.org. Um, all the curriculum materials are actually free there. Uh, a lot of resources are available there, both for training and, and coaching and, and tools for data collection. You name it, it's there. Uh, the second one I'll mention is uh, standforcourage.org, which is really focused on that student leadership piece. Uh, and um, recognizing students for stand-up behavior. That website was actually developed in order to get celebrities involved in recognizing peers or kids who had stood up for others. It's been a really neat experience. Cool. Well, so I think we actually covered most of the questions I had, um, but I'd love to give you the opportunity. If you have any of the things that you would like to say or uh, to contribute to our discussion on bullying here uh, that we you maybe feel like we, we missed. Um, I'd love to have you just sort of have you have, have a moment to say whatever you got. Yeah, absolutely. The only thing I, I might add, and, and I think I really appreciate this time. I think it's been spectacular to, to have this discussion because it's you. so important. Uh, it is, is the, um, the value of engaging the family in this as well uh, and the role that they play both when we're, we're talking with schools, much of the training that we do is with the schools, much of it ends up in the home. Uh, and many kids start in homes, start learning how to react to what they perceive as disrespectful behavior in their house. Uh, similarly, you know, adults, uh, learning to stand up for yourself in an appropriate way is a skill that a lot of adults could learn and use more effectively and would, would, would be very helpful for the society. So my, the only thing I add is that the, the hope of these intervention strategies are really to create effective and efficient um, things or things strategies that people can do that will not just change how kids react to them tomorrow, but will really change the, the culture and the, the, their life outcome in many cases. Uh, as one example, you know, we, that student leadership uh, conversation again when, when we nominate kids to be on that student leadership team, we often don't get the goody two-shoes kids. We often get kids who are nominated by other kids to be on this team. Some of those kids have never or rarely experienced receiving positive peer attention. Many of them have not experienced much of it. And having been able to see them actually get that positive peer attention is is – enlightening and it is so encouraging and it and it, it looks like it's having a major impact on that kid's life and the data support that right you actually see a significant change in the life outcomes or in the strategies that these kids are going forward so that's the only thing i'd add is is this is really about more than just changing the environment of the school but really changing the the, the trajectory of, of of kids and changing the culture of of our well of our world awesome i, I love that l- yeah, i love that too uh, cool, Brooke. Do you do you have anything that you would like to uh, share before we wrap up? Um, any um, anything that we missed, or that you'd like to uh, just add on to the discussion we had so far? Uh, not anything that we've missed, but just piggytailing off of a comment that Dr. Ross made, and we talked a lot earlier that our our students with skill visits are often the one that we find in these situations, and when we were remove kind of our bias and our emotion and some of these things out and we think really functionally about why our students are engaging in this behavior, I feel like it allows to be more solution focused and that allows us to not put the labels on those kids. You're the big bad bully, you're the this. Well, maybe our student is a skill deficit uh, because they've never acquired those skills in their home environment. And so it's our job as the adults to support all of our students, even the ones to engage in inappropriate behavior, how can we add to their pool of skills? We said to really help them uh, achieve 
achieve a better start in life, uh, better being very subjective, but understandably, like how are we adding to their skill deficit pool? That's what I always talk to my teams about. If we consider a skill deficit as like a whole, what scoops are we adding? What are you adding to that skill deficit to make it better for next time? So I just think that humanizing all of our kids and thinking very functionally allows people to look at it from a different lens that can be really social focused. Great. Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much for joining us. I know we went a little over our time here. Would you be, um, if you're interested, you can provide a a way for any of our listeners to either find some of the work that both of you are doing. Um, if you would like, you may provide contact information or a website they can go to uh, to, to maybe reach out to you. Um, another solution I've offered in the past to guests on the show is that they can email us and then we can forward those emails on to you if they're not crazy. Um, so whichever you'd prefer, if you don't want to have your contact information on here, that's that's fine. Um, and if you want to, then that's fine too. It's up to you. But if you, Dr. Ross and then Brooke, just state um, any, any information, any other information about where people can find out more about you? And then if you'd like your contact information. I don't mind the crazy ones either. Okay. <laughs> yeah, happy to. Happy to provide that contact information. Yeah, agreed. I mean, crazy is all subjective, isn't it? So I to have my... <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes it's pretty objective. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to have my contact information shared. Perfect. Well, do you guys want to go ahead and state it for yourselves? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, sure. My my email address is Ross underscore S uh, at symbol CDE as in Colorado Department of Ed dot state dot CO dot US. Good luck. <laughs> uh, my name is Brooke Wagner again. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be on this podcast. And my email is PBIS as in Paul Boy Igloo Sam at Frontier Community dot net. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you again both so much for joining me today and for lending your experience and expertise in this discussion. I think our users will, or our listeners will get a lot of uh, value out of this discussion. So appreciate your time and willingness to share your wisdom today. You got thank it. You, thank Scott. you, Scott. All, right, <laughs> All right. Talk to you later. Bye. 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 All right, again, thanks to Dr. Scott Ross and Brooke Wagner for their contributions on this episode on bullying. Um, you can reach out to us or to them at the information that they provided there. Of course, you can reach us at info at WWD, WWD podcast and at WWD, WWD podcast on the social media platforms. And mm-hmm. um, thank you so much for listening in today. Yep, Thank you for listening. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. I'd uh, love to hear your thoughts on it. And uh, we'll, we'll hear from you soon. All right. This is Abraham. And it's a shame. We're out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O., Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. Mm-hmm.